You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. It is a joy and an honor to be back with you here at Harvest Oakville. I so enjoyed the last time that I was here last May. Uh, Some of you were here then, and my son Elijah came with me, and he is forever now, I told the guys this weekend, a Toronto Raptors basketball fan. As a matter of fact, for Christmas, uh, he asked for Toronto Raptors gear, and so he's got the sweatshirt and the hat and the whole deal now, so he's ready to come back and root for the Raptors, but you have, have won him over to the Raptors basketball program. But it is an honor to be here with you. i got to be honest with you. I don't know of a church, and I speak a lot of places around the country and around the world. I don't know of a church anywhere in the world that I feel more, Pastor Robbie, a sister and, and, and similar heart to the church that I get to pastor in Las Vegas than I do when I'm here with you guys. It's like a home away from home. It's like God birthed the church here in Toronto. <clears throat> God birthed a church here in Toronto, and he birthed a church. When did, when did this church begin? 2004. Our church started in 2001. We're on the west coast of North America. You're on the east coast of North America. I think God birthed us to just meet in the middle, and let's take North America back for the glory and honor of God. Amen? It is such a privilege to be here and to be with you and your team. I love your pastor. He is such a man after God's own heart, and I love his humility and his testimony. I love your fellowship, and it is truly a blessing uh, to be able to be here with you this evening. I want to just lead us in a word of prayer, and I want to just jump right into God's word together tonight. So let's pray. Lord, I pray right now once again for you to take your word And open our hearts and open our minds to what it is you have to say. Lord, I always just approach this moment with a holy sense of awe. Because I realize that over the next few moments as we unpack your word, that your spirit takes your word and supernatural, eternal moments are about to happen. And God, we don't take that lightly, nor do we take that for granted. God, we ask you right now in the power of the Holy Spirit to do a work of transformation. We need to hear from you, Lord. That's why we're here. We didn't gather here to listen to singing. We didn't gather here to hear another sermon. God, we've gathered in this place to hear from you. We invite you to speak. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's interesting as I think about the the relationship that exists between your church and our church in Las Vegas. A lot of similarities. Right now you're studying through a series on the Holy Spirit of God. And you're deepening your understanding of the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that is so, so significant to our learning what it is to live this Christian life. Learning who the Holy Spirit of God is and how we're to live in moment-by-moment dependence upon Him. And at our church in Las Vegas, right now we're studying straight through the New Testament letter of 1 John. 
We are just walking verse by verse through this letter. We just began it a few weeks ago, and as I was praying about what to, to step in and preach here in your church in light of the series that you're in and the series that we're in, God, God really gave me some clarity about something that I just preached a couple of weeks ago at our church that I think really slides in exactly with where you are as a church in your study of the Holy Spirit of God. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to get there in just a few moments. Uh, but before I, I read those verses, I want to say a few things. I want to, first of all, introduce you to a spiritual reality. It's a reality that I shared with our church a few weeks ago, and I hope that you find great encouragement tonight by this spirituality. I think it's going to be up here on the screen. Hey, hey, we did good. There it is. You send stuff in an email, and then you just hope it gets from an email to here. You know, you praise God for that. But look, I want to read it to you. Here's the spiritual reality. A godly walk doesn't mean the absence of sin. Stay with me for a second, all right? A godly walk doesn't mean the absence of sin. There's some of you here tonight, and just the first part of that statement is a struggle. Because you live defeated, you live discouraged because you come to church and you see everybody else and you think everybody else is living godly, which means they don't struggle with sin. And here I am, I struggle with sin all the time. So what am I missing that they've all got? And, and we come in, we put our church face on, we pretend like we got it all together, but on the inside, we know we're really struggling. We think something's broken with us. Something's wrong because we struggle. But here's what I want you to see. A godly walk doesn't mean the absence of sin. A godly walk means experiencing victory in the presence of a very real struggle. I hope that encouraged some of you tonight. The struggle is real. As long as you and I live and breathe on this earth, we will struggle with the reality of sin. Amen? Anybody else but me have that reality in their life? Listen, as long as you live and breathe on this earth, you will struggle with the reality of sin. Don't let the enemy wear you out and beat you up to think that you are somehow a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because you struggle and war against your flesh. The reality is we're all going to live there. As a matter of fact, listen to the way Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 7. I love Romans chapter 7. It keeps me out of an insane asylum a lot of times. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Here's what Paul said in Romans 7. And verse 18, Paul said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And you can hear really how emphatically Paul is saying this here. Paul said, listen, I know I know because I live with it every day. I know because I face the battle. I know from personal experience that no good that dwells in me, that is in my sinful nature or in my flesh. Look what he goes on to say. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. 
Anybody else in the room can I ever identify with that, right? You, you have a desire within you. Christ now lives in you. There's a hunger to obey God. There's a hunger to please God. There is a hunger to live out the desire of God. There's a passion to bring glory to God. And yet day in and day out, you see this struggle in your flesh. And so often we fall short. We, we fail. We don't live up to that expectation in our heart. Paul says, hey, that's exactly where he was living. As you dive into the letter of 1 John, the first chapter of 1 John, John begins to talk about dealing with sin in the life of a believer. And we don't have time to unpack the whole first chapter, but if you're interested in our study, you can go to our website, hopechurchonline.com, and you can get the messages leading up to this. Because we talked about that as a believer, really, we only have two options when it comes to dealing with our sin. First of all, we can be dishonest about our sin, which is what a lot of Christians do. We try to cover it up. We start by lying to other people. We put on a facade. We cover it up and try to pretend that we're something that we're not. Then we go past that to beginning not just to lie to other people, but we begin to lie to ourselves and try to justify our own sin. We try to, to convince ourselves that it's okay. We, we try to make excuses for our sin, or we go to that ultimate level of deception where we make God a liar. That's what John says at the end of 1 John chapter 1. He says we, we, we call God a liar. And by that, we get to a place where we're so comfortable with our own sin that we say to God, God, it's not sin. And we make him out to be a liar. So we can be dishonest about our sin, or we can do what John said in 1 John 1, 9. We can confess our sin. We can get honest about our sin. So John opens this letter by dealing with sin in the reality of the life of a believer. And we can begin to think <laughs> victory is not possible. We can begin to think that sin is just going to dominate our lives as Christians, and that's just the way it's going to be. So the question I really want to wrestle with this evening is, can I, can you experience victory over sin in our daily lives? Or, or am I destined to a life of spiritual highs and spiritual lows? That's where a lot of Christians live, right? A lot of the guys. How many of the guys this weekend? You're here, you're here at Free Indeed. Let me hear from you. You're here, right? So here's what happens. We come to an event like this. Man, we get all fired up. We are emotionally and spiritually charged. We are ready to take on hell with a water pistol. And then before you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, some attitude, some thought, some desire of the flesh creeps up. And that spiritual, emotional high, just like that, it's gone. And you're looking for the next conference, the next book, the next small group Bible study to get back up on that spiritual high. Or we, we go from mountaintop to valley. We go from high moment to low moment. We go from moments where we feel, like, like some of you that were here this weekend, right now you feel so close to God. It's like 
you feel like if your eyes are closed, you could almost just touch him. And then there are other moments where we feel like God is a million miles away. Is it really possible to have the kind of victory that we long for? Well, when John turns the page in this letter to chapter 2, would you look at 1 John chapter 2? We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. John had been addressing this church very sternly. He'd been writing to these believers. He'd been very confrontational. But as he opens chapter 2, he begins with a different tone. He says, my little children. He goes from this in-your-face confrontation to this fatherly, mentorly wrapping his arms around them. My little children. Listen, listen to what he says next. I want to focus on this phrase. I am writing these things to you. Read this with me. So that you may. You know what that is? That's hope. John says, I've written this to you. Yes, I spent the first chapter challenging you and confronting you about sin. And yes, I'm going to talk to you about evidences of your faith as we finish this letter. But John says, here's why I'm writing this. So that you may not sin. I don't know where you are tonight. But can I tell you, as a Christian, where I am, I'm so tired of my flesh. I'm so weary of a heart that wants to please God. A heart that wants to fully follow after God. And yet, the weakness of my flesh that so often gets in the way. And then I read John say, I've written this so that you may not sin. Look what he goes on to say. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Amen? Amen. All right, I want to ask and answer a couple of questions out of these two verses tonight. Here's the first one. Is victory over sin even possible? Is victory over sin even possible? Because by our experience, and sometimes by the way we talk, you can begin to think that victory over sin is not possible at all. But John said here, I've written this to you so that you may not sin. And every time you see that little two-word phrase, so that, in the New Testament, you need to underline it. Because when the Bible says so that, it's two words in the Greek language, but in the English language, but in the Greek language, it's just one word. It's the word hina. And it's an important word. It's a word that should be like a flashing light because it means this. Here's the reason why, or for this purpose. John said, I have written this entire letter to you, and here is the reason why. So that you may 
experience victory over sin. Another thing to point out here that's very important. He said, so that you may not sin. It's an important understanding here to recognize that this is a a tense that does not mean an ongoing continuous victory. It's a tense. It's called the aorist tense. It means a moment in time. Here's what John's saying. I'm not writing to you so that you can have some experience and then for the rest of your life you'll never struggle with sin again. Here's what John's saying. I'm writing to you and if you grasp this, here's what can happen. In this moment right now, you can experience victory over sin. And guess what? In this moment right now, you can experience victory over sin again. And guess what? In this moment right now, you can experience victory over sin again. And guess what? In this moment right it's a moment by moment victory that John is writing to us about here. John is establishing that a major motivation for his letter is to allow believers to experience victory over sin in their daily lives. Now, I know what you may be thinking, Pastor. I'm hearing you talk about experiencing victory, but but if you just knew my struggle. There's some of you that are here who are experiencing what some theologians would would call a besetting sin. It's an area of weakness in your flesh that, that is a constant source of defeat for you. And some of you have just accepted This is just going to be what you deal with from now until Jesus comes back. You've accepted defeat as the norm for your Christian experience. And what John is saying is that in every moment, you and I can experience victory. Now, the reason many believers don't think victory is possible is because we don't understand the difference between victory and deliverance. Let me show you what I mean. I want to put a definition up here. Here's the definition of victory. When I use the word victory tonight, here's what I mean. Let's read this together. God's gracious provision to overcome the temptation to sin. That is victory. Moment by moment, God's gracious provision to allow us to overcome the temptation to sin. That's what God has promised us. That's what John is writing about. I've written to you so that you may know that in every moment you can receive the gracious provision of God to overcome the temptation to sin. If you get that, say amen. Amen. Let me show you deliverance. God's gracious provision to remove the temptation to sin. This is not what God has promised in this life. This is promised. We call this heaven. If you think about salvation holistically, we have been justified. What does that mean? We've been saved from sin's penalty. We are now being sanctified. What is that? We, have, we are in the process of being saved from sin's power. 
Ultimately, we will be glorified. What is that? That's being saved from the presence of sin. In heaven, we'll never again deal with the presence of sin. But as long as we live in this life... Now, I know what some, some people hear this and say, wait a minute now. I know some people who came to know Jesus and God delivered them. They don't struggle with that sin anymore. And you know what I'd say to that? You're right. But one person's personal experience does not equate God's promise to you or me. Let me prove it to you. Simon Peter walked on water. Does that mean we can all get in our cars, drive to the Atlantic Ocean, and take off? No, you give that a shot. See how that goes. Just because Peter experienced that doesn't mean it's a promise of God to you and me. Someone's experience. Lazarus, Lazarus died. He didn't just die. He died. They buried him. He was in the tomb four days. He was so dead, his relatives said, don't roll back the tomb because it's going to stink. He's already started to decompose. Yet Jesus showed up and said, Lazarus, come forth. And I believe if he hadn't said Lazarus, every dead person in every tomb on planet earth would have come bouncing out of the grave. But he said, Lazarus. So Lazarus came back to life on this earth. Does that mean that every one of us, when we die four days later, we're going to get raised from the dead? No. No. We're not promised deliverance. What we've been promised is victory. We've not been promised the removal of the temptation to sin. We've been promised victory which is God's grace to overcome the temptation. Some of you are here, and the reason you struggle is because you think something's broken in you because you still have a flesh that longs for the wickedness of this world. Can I let you in on a secret? That's normal. (laughs) As transparent as I can be in front of you. Transparent as I can be. If you knew half the stuff that my heart sometimes desired, you wouldn't listen to a word that comes out of my mouth. I'm being honest. I have a flesh that is wicked and longs for the things of this world. If I didn't, this thing called living Christianity would be a cinch. But just like you, listen, don't ever let some pastor get in front of you and present themselves as somebody who's got it all together. Listen, we're a mess just like you are. But what we've been promised, John says, is moment by moment victory. Let me show it to you in a couple of places in Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, and he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from what? Say it out loud. Now, here's what we think that means. We think that means freed from the temptation to sin. But that's not what that means. What that means is sin is no longer our master. We used to be solely under the control of sin. Sin dominated our lives. But at the moment of salvation, guess what? We got a new master. We have a new Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer our master. And we have an opportunity in every moment to live in submission to our new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's writing about. Let me show it to you in another place. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look what it says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And 
What are the next three words? You know what we think that says? You be faithful. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now you be faithful. But that's not what it says. Here's what that means. Victory is not about my faithfulness to him. Victory is about his faithfulness to me in every moment and every situation I face. Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation also will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Ultimately, when Jesus returns and delivers us from the presence of sin, we will be delivered from ever experiencing temptation again. But as long as we live and breathe on this earth, we will struggle with temptation. Let me show it to you in another place. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Look what it says. But I say, walk by the what? Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. That phrase sets its desire in the Greek language literally means this, to rise up in protest. Here's what's happening in my life every moment of every day. Christ in me, desiring to live through me, is giving me a passion to love God and please God and honor God. And every moment of every day, my flesh is rising up in protest against Christ in me. Anybody else? Don't, don't look at me spiritual. I know we're in church, but we can be honest. Look what he says. The flesh sets his desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And here's another point of this. Listen, my flesh is not getting better. It's getting worse. Paul writes and he says, though the inner man is being renewed, the outer man's decaying. Here's what that means. As soon as I begin to experience victory over my flesh in one area, you know what my flesh does? My flesh learns a new way to crack the door open. It's how wicked and twisted our flesh is. John here is writing. He's telling us that we can experience victory. So so, so here's the second question. This is where I want to get to. How? How is victory over sin possible? I think most of you in the room, if you're honest tonight, would agree to where we are to this point that the struggle is real, that we fail many times, that our flesh is getting worse. The longer we walk with Jesus, we realize that He's the only thing of value. He's the only good in us. How do I experience victory? Well, here's a common mistake that believers make that I think gets us off track. We think that Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin by His grace. And now we are to try hard to live over the power of sin in our Christian life. And so what you hear a lot from preachers, unfortunately, is you hear a word like this. Commitment. I think it's one of the worst words that ever entered evangelical Christianity. You won't find it in the Bible anywhere. Commitment 
implies you have something to bring to the table to commit. Jesus died for me. He saved me from the penalty of sin. Now I, through willpower, through commitment, through determination, through trying harder, am to live the Christian life. I'm to try. Today, here's the way it looks for a lot of Christians. You wake up after failing yesterday. You wake up today and say, Lord, I blew it. But I'm today, I'm telling you, today's going to be different. I'm going to beat this today. I'm going to live in victory over this today. You know what that is? Flesh. I'm going to do it. You know why we get so discouraged when we fail? Here's why. Because we think we could have done better. We think we're better than that. Let me ask you a question. How is trying to live the Christian life working out for you? Can I tell you how it worked out for me? Terrible. The harder I tried, the worse I seemed to fail. It's not a coincidence that in the middle of a paragraph where John says, I'm writing so that you may not sin... This paragraph is filled with language where he's telling us who Jesus is. Look at the paragraph. And in 1 John chapter 1, you go back up to verse number 9, it says that he is faithful. It tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that he is, Jesus is righteous. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it tells us that he is our advocate. In chapter 2 and verse 2, it tells us that he is our propitiation, our substitute. This word faithful is a word that means one in whom we can have full confidence. This word righteous is one that means one who always reflects what is right without failure. This word propitiation is one that means our substitute. And understand, every one of these terms describing Jesus describe him in a way of ongoing continuous action, meaning this is not just who he is some of the time, this is who he is all of the time. He is always faithful. He is always righteous. He is always our substitute. It's who he is. Here's the point. Look at this spiritual reality. Look at this. Victory is experienced as who I am moment by moment is by faith being empowered by who he is continuously. I can't wait for you to get this. <laughs> Victory is not found in my performance for Christ. Victory is found in my position in Christ. It's not about who I am. It's about who He is in me. Let me show it to you. Let me show it. Let me unpack it. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Listen to what Paul said. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You hear it? Paul says, here's how you walk. Here's how you live your life. Same way you received Him. Well, 
How do we receive him? Ephesians chapter 2. For by what? Grace. You have been saved through what? And that not of yourself. Here's what he said. You didn't receive him by doing something. You didn't receive him by your performance. You received him by grace through faith. We were saved from sin's penalty by grace through faith. That is the gospel. We experience victory from sin's power the same way, by grace through faith. I'm reading a great little book. I read it every year a couple of times, honestly, but it's by a guy named Charles Trumbull. It's called Victory in Christ. Look at this quote by Charles Trumbull. He says, the liberty of the victorious life is brought about wholly by Christ and is sustained not by our continued effort, but through our continued spirit-enabled receiving of God's grace. Did you hear that? It's not our effort. Sin at its core, is unbelief. Let me say it again. All sin at its core is unbelief. Let me prove that to you. I want you to look at this verse of Scripture out of John 16. This is a verse talking about the Holy Spirit, one your pastor may be or has preached in this series. It says, And He, the Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not what wouldn't it make more sense that that would say concerning sin because they do not obey me but he didn't say that we think sin is disobeying God disobedience is the fruit of an inward root that is unbelief That's why he said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You see, when we sin, we are simply trusting in the lies of our flesh, the lies of this world, or the lies of the enemy rather than trusting in God. My flesh will lie to me. This world will lie to me. The enemy will lie to me, and it will tell me, oh, this is what you need to be happy. This is what you need to be fulfilled. This is what you need to have joy. And then you chase that down that rabbit hole. How's that work out? Not too good, right? It never delivers what it promises. But what we did is we believed a lie. Here's the life application. Every sin in my life is choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth of God. Read that out loud with me. Every sin in my life is choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth of God. Let me illustrate it. Let's just take a sin that we can all relate to in some way or fashion. Let's take the sin of lust. Here's the truth. When it comes to lust. Here's the truth. Doesn't matter tonight if you're a single adult. You're a student or you're married. Here's the truth of God's word when it comes to lust. 
God will meet all your needs. Period. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, we immediately say, yeah, but my circumstance, my... No, no, no. There's no exception clauses. There's no fine print there. There's no disclaimer. Jesus said, my grace is totally sufficient for every need in your life. Here's the truth when it comes to lust. God has promised in his word, God will meet every need in my life. Here's the lie. You must meet this need through someone or something. You can't trust God with that need. You got to do that. You got to take care of that. Either through this relationship or this conversation or this online situation. See what it is? It's a lie. Now, here's the key. Here's the key to victory. Look at this. Expose the lie of the enemy to the truth of God and by faith walk in the truth. That's it. That's it. In that moment of temptation, here's what you got to do. You got to expose the lie of the enemy Every temptation is rooted in a lie of my flesh, the world, or the enemy. Every temptation is rooted in a lie. And we have to expose the truth, expose the lie to the truth of God, and then by faith, grab a hold of the truth. Here's what it is. It's moment by moment, not trusting in myself to do better. It's moment by moment resting in the grace of God and by faith grabbing a hold of His truth. Listen, even when it doesn't feel right, because there are going to be a lot of times when it's not going to feel right. Matter of fact, everything in my feeling is saying this is the way to go. But it's a lie. And in those moments, the way to find victory is to just say it. It's a lie. Expose it to the truth of God. And then by faith say, God, even though I don't feel it right now, even though everything in my heart's wanting to chase this, God, I know it's a lie because I've bought that lie before. And I know how it hurts. I know the guilt, I know the depression, I know, the, I know where it leads me, I know the, the bondage that it puts me in. God, it's a lie. And so, Lord, right now, even though I don't believe, even though I don't, I don't feel it by faith, I believe that your grace is sufficient to meet this need in my life. One of my mentors, a guy named Clyde Cranford, he wrote a book called Because We Love Him. Listen to what he said in this book. He said, growth in the Christian life is a process whereby we learn to recognize the lies of Satan 
expose them to the truth of God, and decide whom we will believe, Satan or God. Only as lies are exposed to the truths of God can we begin to walk in the truth and really grow as Christians. Now it makes sense, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, you will know the what? And the truth will set you what? That's it. You'll know the truth. Why? Because temptation's a lie. Jesus said, when you know the truth, And by faith, you grab a hold of the truth. Here's what happens. Faith unleashes the grace of God in our lives to give us victory in this moment over sin. And then in the next moment, we do the same thing. We expose the lie of the enemy to the truth of God. By faith, we grab a hold of it. And faith unleashes the grace of God to give us victory in this moment. Charles Trumbull went on to say it this way. Listen to what Charles Trumbull said. Grace isn't merely God's attitude towards us but his activity on our behalf. Grace doesn't mean God stands off and smiles in our direction. Grace means his tremendous, omnipotent activity. Jesus Christ wants us to let him do his work through us. He does not want to be our helper. He wants to be our life. Did you hear that? You see how the enemies deceived us? Lord, would you help me today? He don't want to help me. He wants to live through me. Help means, Lord, I'm going to commit. Now you help me. The Bible doesn't say commit. You know what the Bible says? Die. You know what happens when I die? I need life. I don't need help. Go down to the funeral home. They don't need help. They need life. When we die and by faith grab a hold of the truth, and we allow Christ to live in and through us, that is where victory comes from. Get this. This means every temptation is not just an opportunity to sin. Every temptation is an opportunity to lean in and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit of God to say, follow me. We think, we think temptations, but why does God allow us to be tempted? It's so bad. No, no, no. Temptation has a potential bad outcome. But temptation is a moment in every day for you and I to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit of God to say, Follow me. Here's what this means. Victory demands intimacy with God. You can't show up on Sunday for a sermon and let that be your time with God for the week and expect in the moment of temptation to experience victory. you got to know His voice. you got to be versed in His truth. We got to sit long at his feet. And I'll close with this. Listen, there will still be moments of failure in our lives spiritually. That's why, John, I love the transition. My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. Period. And if anyone sins. Because you know what John knew? 
as long as we live in this life, we're going to have moments of failure. But I love what he said. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. That little phrase, with the Father, it's the same phrase used in John 1.1. In the beginning was, was the Word. The Word was with God. Same word there. Same phrase. It literally means in the Greek language, face to face with God. As you and I, moment by moment, are living in dependence on Christ, we're yielding to Him, allowing His grace to be unleashed in our life. When those moments of failure come, here's what He said. We got an advocate. He's face to face with the Father. And he's not declaring our innocence. No. He's declaring our guilt. But he's reminding and saying, I've already purchased that redemption. I've already paid the penalty for that sin. There's no condemnation because they are in Christ Jesus. In every moment of temptation, we have an advocate. We don't just have an advocate. The Bible says he's our propitiation. It means our substitute. It's a word that carries the idea of satisfaction. Here's what that means. Oh, I can't wait for you to hear this. God, as you sit here tonight, God is 100% satisfied with you. You don't have to earn that. He's not satisfied with you or me because of us. He's satisfied with you or me because of Jesus. We are now in Christ. If I was standing here before you tonight in a black plastic bag, when you looked at me, what would you see? Black plastic bag, right? Because I'm in it. We are in Christ. Meaning when God looks at you, he doesn't see somebody who's having a good day or a bad day. He doesn't see somebody who's failing and victory and failing. No, he sees us as sinless and as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because I earned that? No, by grace, through faith. Through faith. So when we do sin, the prescriptions in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess our sin. If we confess, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. The word confess, I told the guys Friday night, it's an interesting Greek word. It's a word that means to say the same thing as. It means to agree with God. To confess my sin is to say, yep, God, you're right, I'm wrong. God, it is sin. I acknowledge it. And here's the beauty. Some people say, you know, as Christians, we have to confess and ask God to forgive us. Did you know the Bible never says that? The Bible says if we confess, He does forgive us. We don't even have to ask for it. You know why? Because it's already done. All the forgiveness we ever needed was accomplished in Christ, past, present, and future. It's done. It's settled. It's sealed in Christ. When we get honest with God, the Bible says He does forgive us. And it says He cleanses us then From all unrighteousness. What's that? That's the stuff we don't even know about yet. Listen, there's parts of my flesh I'm glad he waited to show me. I don't know what's next. I don't know what else he's going to turn his light on in my life. There's there's weaknesses and, 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 and garbage in my life that Christ is progressively growing me in. But here's what he says. When the Holy Spirit of God puts his finger on something in your life, you just get honest about that, I'll take care of everything else. That's what it looks like to walk 
by faith. And I'll just say this to those of you here tonight who maybe you're not a Christian. John closes this little section of Scripture with this phrase. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What's that mean? Here's what it means. No one is beyond the reach of Christ's forgiveness. Doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what roads you've been down, how far you've traveled, how long you've been down that path. No one is beyond the reach of Christ's forgiveness. You can experience forgiveness in Christ today.